The province is looking to go to court on one hand to try and stop Kinder Morgan, while on the other hoping to stay out of court in a defamation case. Joining me to break it all down is Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later in the show, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. For Kamloops Computer Centre, here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Another smoky day here in Kamloops with atrocious air quality. Uh, we're on week three now. It's just been awful. Uh, but I am happy to be joined by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. My sympathies to folks up in the oh. central interior. This is a rough, rough year for you all. I know. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like living in Stephen King's The Mist up here right now. It's, oh, wow. it's just terrible. Uh, you can see it psychologically, like people are just, it's just, it's just oppressive. And it's, uh, I did a story this morning, the local ER, uh, up 18% over the last week or two of smoke related, uh, you know, complaints and et cetera. Unbelievable. So, but anywho, uh, the, uh, topic du jour here is always politics. So uh, the big news this week, uh, Trans Mountain, uh, the NDP government, of course, uh, pledged to use every tool in the toolbox to stop this thing. And guys, we saw a couple of cards thrown on the table yesterday, uh, Thomas Berger hired to head up the Trans Mountain Legal Challenge. Yvonne, what's the skinny on this guy? Sounds like he's got a pretty healthy portfolio. Interesting, interesting note yesterday on Twitter was somebody asked, is this the same guy that lost the 1969 election to yeah. WAC Bennett? Yes, it is. Tom Berger then, 36 years old, leader of the NDP. Uh, he did one term there, uh, one term in the legislature. He then became one of the leading lawyers in the country on First Nations issues. He was appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada by Pierre Trudeau, did a dozen years there, resigned after a controversy where he spoke out on important constitutional matters regarding First Nations. A lot of people thought his comments were warranted, but uh, the court kind of huffed that judges aren't supposed to do that. Since then, he's really just made himself a name uh, as a leading advocate in the country on First Nations issues. He was in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, I think just last year, uh, sharp as a tack. I interviewed him on the cable uh, channel, a show that I do there a couple of years back. And, uh, you know, he's 84 years old now, but, uh, man, I wouldn't want to go up against him in a courtroom. <laughs> uh, Keith, uh, this guy's got a pretty extensive First Nations background, as Vaughn mentioned. Uh, does that pretty much signal that that's where the NDP is hanging its hat? to stop the pipeline? Exactly. And David Eby all but said that yesterday, the Attorney General, saying that uh, Berger's appointment signals that uh, First Nations, the argument that First Nations have not been consulted or not been adequately consulted, and who knows how you would define that, that is yet to be determined. But that's the main argument they're going to present uh, fighting the pipeline going forward, uh, using the argument that First Nations' interests have not been accommodated, they have not been adequately consulted, and therefore their rights have been infringed. And Tom Berger is probably the perfect guy to make that case in a courtroom. So they're seeking uh, intervener status at the National Energy Board Judicial Council of Review. Uh, they're already a respondent in a, a case involving the Squamish Indian Band, but uh, if there are other court challenges, and I expect there will be, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Kinder Morgan at some point sues the, the B.C. government uh, for trying to block them, that uh, the, the government's uh, argument aren't going to turn on environmental issues so much as it will turn on First Nations rights issues. And it's interesting that E.B. again brought up what this is a, a, something that's going to be increasingly a factor in B.C., what's called the United Nations Declaration of Rights of, of Indigenous People. Mm-hmm. That has been uh, enshrined in policy now by the NDP government, the federal government has backed away from that. They think basically that that allows First Nations a de facto veto over any land use decisions on land under title. 
which is basically 103% of British Columbia. Uh, but the NDP has uh, embraced that. So uh, this has implications far beyond Kinder Morgan. It has implications for all resource development throughout the province. Now, Vaughn, uh, the environment critic and also local MLA up here, Peter Millibar, raised the point that the, mud, the water seemed to be muddied on the First Nations consultation issue. Uh, there are some First Nations uh, through the interior uh, that have very much signed on to this thing and signed off on being properly consulted, as has the federal government to some degree. That's quite true, Shane, and I could point you to another case, which is Site C. Uh, First Nations have gone to court a bunch of times and argued that they weren't properly consulted. The courts found that they were, that Hydro went out of its way to consult and accommodate their their interests. And look, uh, to environmental activists and to First Nations leaders, uh, that's not good enough. It, the, the consultation is only sufficient when they get what they want. Uh, their interpretation of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of, independent, uh, of Indigenous People is that it's a veto. Uh, government says it's not a veto, but their view is it's a veto, and their view is the only kind of consultation that works is the one where they get what they want. So, uh, you know, the gov- for the provincial government to align itself to that hardline position, I think in the long run will make it very, very difficult to get land use and resource decisions moving forward in B.C., it was already difficult enough under a sympathetic government mm. uh, to now have the government basically aligning itself with the toughest positions that First Nations have taken in this province. I, uh, I think there is going to be a problem with investment in B.C. Well, Keith, what's the onus here on, I mean, it's one thing to stand in front of a microphone and say we're going to have a more rigorous standard for environmental approval and a more uh, higher bar for First Nations consultations, but uh, where where does the responsibility lie to actually say what that means and what that means going forward on projects and, and how does that affect, I mean, in Kinder Morgan's case, this is not a new project. This has been in the pipeline, pun intended, for quite some time. Well, Vaughn mentioned Site C, and those, the court decisions around there are very interesting because they're mirror, they mirrored each other throughout uh, the, the, the various challenges there. And what the courts in that case did, and perhaps courts will be, other judges will be looking at what happened there as a model, is they actually quantified what it meant to be, have adequate consultation. So they actually added up how many times BC Hydro met with First Nations bands, how much over what time frame, how many hours was spent in meetings, how much money was spent. In, in, uh, in trying to meet and accommodate First Nations' interests. And they, they put actual numbers in their judgments, which could be used as a template, I suppose, for, for other judges looking at Kinder Morgan. Kinder Morgan has, Ian Anderson, the CEO, the president of Kinder Morgan, uh, says that they have met extensively and substantially with various First Nations all along the route. Oh, it, it, some First Nations, you, as you report, Shane, there's a number of First Nations site benefits agreements with Kinder Morgan. Uh, others have adamantly opposed it. There are overlapping claims. This is another thing that muddies the waters here. You could have two First Nations o- have overlapping claims on the same part of uh, parcel of land. One of them supports Kinder Morgan. One of them doesn't. Mm-hmm. Adequate consultation if you if you talk to both of them, but you talk to one more than the other. It's uh, something for the courts to work out. And at the very least, this means we're going to have a lot of court challenges and a lot of lawyers are going to make a lot of money. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Vaughn, uh, Mr. Heyman also mentioned, that, of course, that Kinder Morgan is missing on these five environmental management plans, uh, and they can, in his words, uh, not put shovels in the ground until satisfaction is met there. Does the province have some room to monkey with those at all, or is that completely out of, uh, offline? 
Well, that's where they have to be extremely careful. So we have an environmental approval process in the province, and the company went through it under the previous government, and a certificate was issued. So the company went through that in good faith. The law hasn't changed. The certificate is issued. It comes with conditions. So those, not all those conditions have been met. And until they've been met, Hagen's on, Hagen's on solid ground. The conditions haven't been met. Until you met, you can't go ahead. The company says it can and will meet those. The, the tricky legal territory you get into is if the company, having gone through the process in good faith and met all the conditions, which it says it can do, the government then says that's still not good enough. That's where the government opens itself up to a lawsuit, because then the company says, look, we risked all of our effort and our money in this province in good faith, and we went through this process, and we got federal approval, and we're ready to go. You can't, at the end of that process, turn around, move the goalposts, and make us go back to square one. So what you heard in that press conference yesterday was some real caution on the part of Heyman. It echoed the caution that David Eby expressed on your station with Jim Harrison a few weeks ago, where he said, we can't artificially hold up permitting. We have to have legitimate, valid grounds to do so. Uh, Vaughn, or Keith, the last word to you on this one. Uh, what did you read into uh, Kinder Morgan's response on this? It was very carefully worded. Carefully worded, and they're not backing down. I mean, they're, they're, going, they're continuing to try to meet the, the requirements under the permitting um, process and getting permission to do the various things. So, and they intend to begin construction in September. Now, in September, I suspect, um, so they'll, they'll be working on, on land they own, which is basically uh, the, the land around the terminal in Burnaby, uh, perhaps some work in Alberta. Heyman's Valley, you can't begin work on Crown Land, is uh, something that will be tested, I think, uh, as time goes by. As they meet these environmental uh, certificates or management plans, uh, they've, they've met three out of eight. So if they've met three, one assumes they can meet all eight. <coughs> and at, at what point, as Vaughn says, if they meet all eight and then the BC government tries to block them, then we're into some, uh, some potential fireworks that could cost British Columbia because I think uh, the courts will rule that this is a federal pipeline. It has federal approval. If, if these other requirements are met, all, all but acknowledged by Heyman yesterday at the end of the news conference, <coughs> he acknowledged. <coughs> excuse me. There are some con- there's some constitutional limits. Our BC can go here, and he, he's acknowledged that, which I think is a signal that BC knows. Best they can do for now, uh, and we'll just see how how good a fight it can be and how successful it can be in the court, so they know it's not ultimately guaranteed victory. All right, uh, let's take a quick break and uh, get to uh, some commercials here on Radio NL, and we'll have more with Keith and Vaughn after this on Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Guys, uh, we're still waiting sort of for the first shoe to drop in the Liberal leadership race. The party's obviously mulling over uh, rules and format and that kind of thing. But uh, some interesting comments uh, and stuff made this week. Maybe start with uh, Kevin Falcon, who who made the comment that maybe it's time for an outsider to come in. Uh, very interesting, considering he was the establishment guy who lost to an outsider, uh, who was Christy Clark in the last go-around. Uh, anything to read into those comments? Uh, yeah, I think 
uh, Falcon we'd heard was doing very very well in business and not interested in coming back to politics and uh, probably a good move too. I think that the liberals are starting to recognize this is a an occasion for renewal. Uh, that's where you start looking at an outsider. Uh, Christy Clark made that problem uh, made that possibility a little more difficult, Shane, by a couple of things. One was. Uh, resigning before the newcomers really had a chance to show anything in the House. I mean, the, the newest members were just elected in May. And then, of course, uh, she vacates her seat, which you might want to hold for an outsider, uh, for coming in from outside, and Ben Stewart is going for that. Um, I, Shane, I should also issue a correction here on the air. Mm. I, <laughs> a few minutes ago, I just elevated Tom Berger to the Supreme Court of Canada. He was a member of the Supreme Court of British Columbia, <laughs> and served there for 11 years, but uh, many people think he should have made it to the Supreme Court of Canada, but he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Duly noted, sir, duly noted. Uh, Keith, uh, what did you read into uh, anything that Mr. Falcon had to say there? I think that expresses the sentiment a number of people have, that uh, people associated with the previous government uh, should give way uh, for some new faces. Uh, I think you can include in the definition of newcomer those who were first elected in May, because we really don't, haven't really seen them on the provincial stage before. So uh, I, take a guy like Mike, uh, Michael Lee, uh, who I'm increasingly hearing about uh, is going to throw his hat in the ring. He's the newly elected uh, MLA in Vancouver, Langara. A corporate lawyer, Chinese Canadian uh, community leader. Uh, so he's one I think is going to be in there. Andrew Wilkinson, though, is uh, a holdover from from previous government. He's probably going to run. Todd Stone and Kamloops there, likely to run. Uh, maybe Diane Watts, the uh, former mayor of Surrey, but um, keep hearing from critics saying she has absolutely no presence in the BC Liberal Party. She's a federal conservative and mm. she has never been to a BC Liberal event. So uh, no matter who runs those, Shane, I have to say the field is decidedly weaker than it was in 2011 when you had Falcon, George Abbott, Mike DeYoung, Christy Clark, Moira Stilwell all run as candidates, all strong uh, uh, candidates, and I just don't see the same strength of uh, candidacy in, in any of the names I just mentioned in terms of uh, who's, who's ultimately going to win. Yeah, the other thing that strikes me, and I mentioned it in, in our email exchange prior to the show, uh, is, I, and Vaughn, you pointed it out, uh, there's only two guys since World War II uh, that have been premier uh, outside of sort of the metro area of Vancouver and, and the southern part of uh, Vancouver Island. Um, Let's name so, Bennett. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but Dan uh, Miller, I guess, gets an asterisk. Yeah. Miller was the member for Prince Rupert when he served briefly as, as stand-in premier between Glenn Clark and Ujaldus Ange. Yeah, but we've got some candidates, as you mentioned, uh, Keith, in, in Todd Stone. Uh, Mike Bernier is another one. I spoke to him this week. He says he's seriously considering. He's just waiting to see what the party does as far as rural. So is it time for, for a rural leader for the B.C. Liberal Party and potential premier? I think it's more where, where the where the tension is going to be is going to be more on whether it's a conservative or a liberal. I think that's the uh, that's the internal dynamic within the BC Liberal Party. Keep in mind, leadership races it, this involves a, a relatively small number of people. It's not the public isn't voting here. It's uh, it's the party members, and the rules are going to be interesting. They're not beholden to go on the the, the rules that were existed in 2011. They could they could come up with a completely different format. I've been saying, and Morris Stilwell was on uh, Twitter saying this as well, get rid of the PIN numbers, you yeah. know, which are open to abuse. These mass sign-ups, uh, these phony PIN numbers that always arise in leadership races, there were questions about them in Christy Clark's win, questions about when Adrian Dix won in the NDP, how valid some of this, this process was, and maybe go back to the old delegate convention where you, you actually elect delegates from the ridings and everybody goes to the convention center in Vancouver or wherever. 
uh, and uh, elect the uh, elect the the leader through ballots. Um, I'm not saying they're going to do that, but I think I think that that type of approach would inject some en- much needed energy and enthusiasm into a Liberal Party that I think has been really, really shattered somewhat by that uh, unexpected election loss. Yeah, uh, Vaughn, uh, to you. I was I was curious to watch Maura Stillwell, who is a, a fantastic follow on Twitter, and she's very outspoken. She's a little bit of breath of fresh air, always has been, and uh, I think got beat up a little bit uh, behind the scenes of the Liberal Party and stuck in the back benches for it. But uh, she keeps repeatedly saying, "I want my BC Liberal Party back." Is there internal tensions that way? Oh yeah, no. I mean, there. I mean, first of all, the, the what happened in. May was shattering for the Liberals, and then what happened in June, where they made fools of themselves trying to force a second election, was even more damaging. So, you know, you've got a party that's still struggling to pick itself up off the floor. I I assume, Shane, you've had the same problem that a lot of us have had, of just getting anybody in the Liberals to even comment on what the government's doing. They, they've just appointed a lineup of critics, but uh, they're, they're not. Uh, they're only just now stepping into the opposition role. So you've got all that. I think Keith also makes an interesting point about going back to a delegated convention. And what, and what people have said to me about that is that this PIN number system where you sit at home and you dial a phone number and you vote for a leader, that's your commitment to the party, as opposed to getting organized in your writing, going to a delegate selection meeting, persuading people to send you to the convention, helping pick up the tab to get there, going to the convention, putting in three days there. That kind of commitment to a political party gives it momentum going forward. The the person who wins that convention has you know, a thousand activists in the room behind them already. So, you know, I think there's an argument to be made that the political parties, by going to this sort of direct election over the phone line system, haven't helped the development of their base and of their and of their activists. Interesting stuff. Uh, guys, let's take a break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, uh, we'll talk about the Gordon Wilson mess and uh, all the ripples that are going to come out of that. More with Keith and Vaughn here on Radio NL Inside Politics. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Guys, what a difference one week makes. Uh, one week between Gordon Wilson being stomped on by all the NDP faithful for doing nothing, essentially cashing checks and uh you know, basically riding in the backs of the taxpayers, according uh, to Mr. Ralston and the Premier. Uh, and then a week later, we're getting a round of apologies. Uh, Mr. Wilson is lawyered up, and it's looking a little grim on the defamation front. Uh, I guess just first off, your reactions to what has been a, a very quick and interesting story. Keith? Well, well um, anything involving Gordon Wilson is always interesting and entertaining yeah. in the uh, history of B.C. politics. Uh, it's, uh, he's now, my understanding, he is going ahead with legal action. Uh, he's going to be suing, uh, presumably, Ralston and probably Horgan for defamation, for libel. Uh, their claims that he did nothing, giving the impression that uh, he was basically, as you say, cashing checks. Wilson thinks his reputation has been sullied, and he wants to continue to work in the LNG sector. He's built up a lot of contacts, a lot of credibility, and he thinks these comments, he says, have now gone international in trade journals. Uh, have really hurt him. So uh, Ralston and Horgan may learn an, uh, an expensive lesson here that the taxpayers ultimately will have to pay. Uh, but um, one of the, some of the backstory here, though, Shane, I think is Wilson was a former NDP cabinet minister, a member of the party. He ran for leader 
Uh, he was backed by some of the people closest to John Horgan, notably Mo Sohota. Uh, so he had a lot of NDP connections, but he left the party. He left and he went back over to Christy Clark. The parallel here, in terms of how they view him, is with what happened to Ujjal Dosanjh, who went from being the premier of BC, the leader of the NDP, went over to the federal liberals. He is now a pariah within NDP circles. Uh, Adrian Dix, when he gave his first speech after becoming NDP leader, uh, praised every single NDP leader in history, with the notable exception of Ujjal Dosanjh. Didn't even mention his name. So part of this is, uh, I think, this uh, ill-researched payback, uh, emotional payback from the NDP to a guy who left them. And that NDP, I'll tell you, uh, we mentioned Tom Berger off the top. He ran in the 69 leadership against Barrett. Juan and I were at a retirement dinner for an NDP cabinet minister in the mid-90s, and we were told, after we asked, where's, where's Mo Sohota, where's so-and-so, and we were told, people who backed Dave Barrett were not allowed to come to that dinner. It was <laughs> back Tom Berger. So that's how long grudges can last in that party, and I think we're seeing a grudge right now play out. Yeah, Vaughn, so basically a drive-by smear gone awry? Yeah, no. <laughs> you know, the president of the NDP, when Wilson was recruited to join the NDP as a cabinet minister and prop up the government and then later seek the leadership, was, was Bruce Ralston. <laughs> Ralston was then president of the party. So he remembers all that history very, very well. And, yeah, I the, the New Democrats fired not a huge number of liberal appointees they fired some most of the people they fired were people you'd expect to be fired they they were close to the liberals they got severance they're gone but with wilson they insisted on the public shaming and parading his corpse through the street and saying he'd been paid half a million dollars and done nothing and they did it i think it was an act of political revenge wilson you know is no dummy and no slouch at the political game he's He's targeted in his threat for a lawsuit. He's demanded to see the review mm -hmm. that the New Democrats claimed they conducted. Remember, they came out and they fired him. They reviewed the records. They found no records, even though there was a bunch of stuff sitting on the on the government website, as our as our friend Mike Smith discovered last weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Wilson is saying, "Well, I'd like to see this review." And, you know, Gordon suspects that no such review exists, that it was just a drive-by shooting, but he's asked for it, they haven't produced it, and that could be a very interesting lawsuit because of it. Yeah, he's uh, given them a deadline of Monday to cough up in writing an apology retraction and make public this review. So, Keith, it raises the question, is there a possibility that there was no review? Uh, yeah, I, I'd be surprised if there was a review. I think uh, this was just an assumption made, uh, by, uh, by by a party that had Wilson in his cro in their crosshairs for a long time. You know, Wilson Wilson was attacked and criticized by Ralston and Horgan in estimates debates uh, in uh, in the legislature uh, when they were in opposition. So they've been gunning for him for some time. Uh, and uh, it, what's ironic is the, the the NDP was the one who made the FOI request that yeah. produced all these documents. Somebody put them in a in a folder and just forgot about them. So I think it's a case of some some uh, pent up emotional payback from the NDP to Wilson and some bad briefing uh, briefings that Ralston got in this. Some somebody somewhere in the political echelon of the NDP. Uh, screwed up here and let well, uh, Ralston go out there and basically make a fool of himself and a very expensive lesson. And I just wonder if uh, if anybody in the NDP staff is going to wear this. Yeah. Uh, Vaughn, is there anything here that can kind of 
contain the damage? I mean, if they cough yes. up a, an apology and, and a retraction, I mean, I don't know where they stand on, on releasing a review that may or may not be there. But well, it, yeah, so they've, they've gone, they met him halfway already. Look, uh, Ralston apologized immediately as soon as Mike Smith drew this to Ralston's attention. Ralston's a lawyer. He apologized immediately to Smith on Monday. And Horgan, at a press conference the next morning, apologized in the scrum, said he apologized and he wasn't going to qualify that. So uh, Wilson is saying, well, an apology delivered at a, at a press conference doesn't equal the kind of smear they did, and he still wants to know about the review. So he wants a written apology. They could, they could still get themselves out of this, I think, with a proper written apology negotiated through lawyers and a public statement to that effect. And they might, if that review doesn't exist, or if it's as pathetic as it clearly was that they missed stuff the NDP itself had requested, they might as well come out and admit it now. Because I don't think Wilson's going to walk away from Mm -hmm. this. And if it goes to court, you know, you know how the courts work, it'll take some time. Which means that when the testimony is all finally heard in court, months from now, They'll be back through all of this all over again. So I think they'd be very, very wise to get together with Wilson's lawyer, draft the apology he's asking for, fess up to the uh, dubious review, and put it behind them very quickly. They're a new government. I think the public would accept that if it was all settled and done for and we didn't have to hear about it again. I think that would be the wise course of action. But the, the one person, the only other person they'd be uh, least wanting to apologize to is Christy Clark. <laughs> this is for them to, for a big come down here to apologize to Wilson, who wants to drag them through shards of glass on this. Mm-hmm. It's just going to stick in Horgan and Ralston's craw. Yeah, Keith, you mentioned that he's going ahead. My understanding was he's got the deadline to Monday. Have you heard it's official? The lawsuits to go. Well, I, I saw a note from Judy T. Abji's wife on Facebook saying legal action is now ensued, and I can't comment. I sent her a note. Does that, I said, Does that mean you you? launched legal action. She says we're not commenting anymore because the lawyer is preparing uh, paperwork now to go forward with a, with a, a legal proceeding. So mm. uh, they won't offer much more details than that. Well, all right. Well, we're in the soup on that one. Uh, uh, before we go, uh, Vaughn, wanted to touch really quickly with you on your column uh, on Site C and the narrow scope of review from BCUC. We're finally getting some details there, yeah. uh, and they're thin indeed. Yeah, so uh, BC Utilities Commission is going ahead with this independent review of Site C. On the on the commission website, they've posted the details. So they are welcoming submissions from the public. Uh, you got three weeks to get it in, actually less than three weeks now. The deadline for submissions closes on August the 30th. And they're warning people, don't bother sending us stuff that doesn't affect, that doesn't involve, that isn't relevant to the very narrow mandate they've been given by Cabinet. So they don't want to hear about all the flooded agricultural land. They don't want to hear about the environmental issues. They don't want to hear about the matters that First Nations have raised in court. It's strictly a narrow set of questions. Is the project on time and on budget? Is there an alternative power system generating option, demand management scheme that would provide similar benefits to Site C, and then they want to know what would it cost to mothball it, what would it cost to terminate it altogether. Those are very narrow questions. That's all they're interested in hearing. Hmm. You've got three weeks, or you got till August the 30th to get it in. The next thing is that input and their own findings will be turned into a report preliminary by September the 20th. There will then be another three-week round where the public can have a say. 
that will be at open houses around the province, so they will be going to the affected areas. And then they put a final report into Cabinet on November the 1st that answers the questions, and then it's up to the New Democrats to decide what they want to do with Site C. The commission is not going to say, kill it, mothball it, let it go ahead. They're going to say, here's the background information you asked for, you make the call. Yeah, so they're going to provide advice on those options. Yeah. They're not going to make a recommendation a, a, B, or C, but they will provide advice. And already, a couple of real ardent site C activists have told me they sort of smell a rat here yeah. uh, on a couple things. One is the commission is is beholden to use hydro's own numbers when it comes to forecasted levels of of the electrical needs going out. And there's been a lot of criticism of those numbers that they're they're not accurate. They're too optimistic, or they're they're designed to. Uh, uh, support the notion that Site C is needed. So that's one big problem for the anti-dam activists have. The other one is the uh, in, in looking at the alternatives to Site C, they have to factor in the reliability of their power options. And pretty well, hydroelectricity is the only reliable 24-7 form of power in this province. Wind and solar are not. I mean, you get wind power if the wind blows. And yeah. Solar power if the sun shines, and not if they don't. So I think the deck is stacked against the Site C opponents here. The commission has been put into a pretty narrow little tube here, and there's not much room to maneuver other than saying go ahead or perhaps mothball it. All right, interesting. We'll have to wait and see where that goes. That's a story that uh, is going to continue to produce, I think. Uh, Vaughn, I understand you're on holidays for the next couple of weeks. We're going to miss you. I'm on holiday for the next couple of weeks and trying to decide whether to invest in a pair of welder's glasses to look at the eclipse of the sun in Oregon on October, <laughs> uh, sorry, August the 21st, because yeah. I will actually be in that part of Oregon when it happens, but I know you can blind yourself if you don't have the right kind of glasses, so... You know, Shane, it would just be my luck to buy the two pair of welder's glasses for myself and my wife, and then there'd be a giant cloud move over the sun just as the eclipse begins. <laughs> I've been through Oregon. My memories are a little fuzzy because it's a free poor state. So, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the crossing line is uh, sort of Lincoln City. Mid-state yeah. crosses the I-5 at around Salem. Uh, yeah. All right, uh, gentlemen, always appreciate it. Thank you so much for your insight. Uh, Keith, I'll see you next week, I hope. And uh, Vaughn, have a great two weeks, and we'll see you back in the program in a little while. Bye-bye. There we go. That's uh, Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer here on Inside Politics. So we're going to take a quick break. On the other side, Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back to Inside Politics. My next guest is this province's new transportation minister, Claire Trevenna, who joins us by phone. Claire, welcome to the show. A couple of interesting issues in your ministry have kind of piqued my curiosity. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the sticky issue of tolls on the Golden Ears Bridge and the Port Man. Uh, I know that there's a, a couple dynamics at play here. Let's start with the timeline. Uh, your mandate letter says you're going to get rid of those things per the, the campaign promise of your party. So uh, when might we see that happen? Uh, we are working on uh, on fulfilling that campaign promise, and we will be removing the tolls as soon as we can. Is as soon as we can, say, the fall budget, or are we going to have to wait a little longer than that? Well, it is part of my mandate letter, and I'm working through the priorities. So when I say as soon as we can, I, I am serious. As soon as we can actually do this, we will do this. All right. That's going to drive a bit of a black hole on the revenue side, not to mention the debt on those bridges. Uh, any kind of uh, thought uh, about how you guys are going to deal with that? 
This is um, something that obviously we are looking at, but when we look at infrastructure, we're looking at the good of all the province. And so we want to make sure that everyone has equitable access and that we are able that people who are living south of Fraser or north of the Fraser are not having to pay those extra, extra fees. Yeah, but again, that's going to drive a hole through revenue, and then we have the debt of the bridges, uh, which could potentially weigh down the budget uh, and the provincial debt. Uh, any way or any thoughts how you're going to tackle that? Well, obviously, we're working with the Minister of Finance, and that's why we are working through this. And as soon as we have the um, are able to announce when we're going to be removing the tolls, we'll be talking about that too. Okay, but it is, I imagine, a significant challenge financially, though, yeah? Well, uh, you know, we're looking at a, a, a loss-making bridge. Port Man was a loss-making bridge, so it is part of our uh, part of our infrastructure, our, the fabric of BC and the fabric of, of ensuring that we have a healthy communities and healthy economy, and I think we should be responsible for that. Does that also mean once the tolls come down that essentially uh, TRIO and some of the companies responsible for collecting the tolls and examining the pictures and all that would more or less have to be disbanded? We're looking at all the different aspects of what this uh, policy will mean and what it's going to mean both for um, the, the people who are working there and the, um, the actual structure. So this is something we're working through at the moment. I'd say we're going to, when we are able to announce it, we will announce it. So Shane, you are going to hear about this uh, as soon as we can announce it. But right. we are three weeks into the job and it's still something that we're working on. Yeah, but fair to say though, TRIO, I mean, it's going to essentially be useless if it's not collecting tolls. There's not much use for it then. Well, we have said that we're not going to have tolls, so from that point, uh, you know, that, that's what will happen. We won't be having tolls, and so we won't be having toll collection. All right. The other big project down there that I noticed wasn't in your mandate letter uh, was, uh, I guess we can call it the Massey Bridge, for lack of a better name. Uh, what's going on there as far as uh, replacing the tunnel? Is that bridge dead in the water? Or is it something still being looked at? What's going on? Well, it was not in the mandate letter. We are very well aware of the issue of congestion in that part of Highway 99. And uh, this is something that we're taking very seriously about how to deal with that congestion, as well as uh, looking at what the, what different things that can be done, could be done. Uh, it was a vanity project, and we're looking to see what we can do there. What options are on the table as far as uh, what you can do there? Well, as I say, three weeks in, we have. This is not on my um, mandate letter, but we're very aware of the pressure that is coming from communities. They want to have an answer, so we are going to be looking at what we can do. Uh, we are studying this, and we'll be um, working working with uh, communities. We've had the commitment. We're going to look at what the mayors want to see there. We have had that, so uh, you know, we, we are working to try and find solutions. All right. The other issue that uh, perks my interest is uh, ride sharing. I know that there was some uh, bit of a U-turn by the former government on this issue. Uh, where are you starting on that, uh, and, and what do you, where do you expect to go with that file? Well, we are starting on the premise that uh, the equal playing field, that passenger safety is paramount. Uh, so we want to make sure that people who are driving or getting a cab or taking a, a a vehicle of any sort can ensure that they are going to be tra traveling as safely as possible. So, I mean, I know Uber is looking to set up shop in Vancouver. I assume that uh, over time they'll come to places like Kelowna and Kamloops as well. Uh, when might we see a framework for how they can operate from your government? Well, my mandate letter says that it should be working with the Solicitor General and we'll be doing that on how best to uh, approach this. But we are looking for equity. We know that there is a lot of investment investment 
in the taxi industry from the license holders. We know that public safety is paramount and we've got to make sure that that does come first. I know the previous minister, uh, Peter Fassbender, who was working on this, was uh, doing some consultations and doing sort of a review process. Are you picking up that baton or are you starting from scratch? Well, I'm working with the Solicitor General to find the best solution here. It's obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about what can happen, but say public safety has to come first, and that's the the basis from anything that we do uh, when we're going forward. So basically, uh, there's going to be some rules around licensing, etc., for safety and other purposes, uh, you know, some kind of basic guidelines? As I say, we are working on this. It's still a few weeks in, Shane. It's, uh, we've got a lot of things on the priority list, and uh, we'll be dealing with this with the Solicitor General to try and find uh, ways forward in the coming weeks and months. All right, uh, not to leave this part of the world out, I know fast-tracking the number one to Alberta is key. Uh, Mr. Horgan made a lot of noise about that. Uh, what's going on in that front as far as the timeline and, and what project comes next? Well, I'm going to actually be going out along Trans-Canada in a couple of weeks to see the work that is being done, uh, look at the other possibilities of where work can be done, sit down with the ministry and find out how we can proceed with this, at what pace we can proceed with this. It is essential that we do this. It's, it's part of our... Uh, transportation corridor, our economic corridor, it's vital for a, a healthy BC, both for uh, commerce, for the economy, and for people who are living and working and using that highway. Uh, any idea in a timeline, Clara? It's tricky, I know. There's a lot of serious work that there's, has to be done there. there. There's a lot of serious work. Uh, there are certain priorities, there are certain things in play already. And so, just going to be looking at this strategically. Uh, which areas we can work on and uh, how we can work on them. Uh, we're not going to put a timeline uh, immediately, as I say, three weeks in, but we are going to go out. I'm going out in a couple of weeks to see the, the areas and see what is being done and what can be done. All right. Uh, last question here, just on the wildfire front. Uh, you know, of course, it's been a bit of a firestorm out there, but highways have certainly been affected to a greater degree than I can remember in recent years uh, with closures due to wildfires, including some that are existing as we speak. Uh, is that a concern on your end, and should mitigation efforts be launched to kind of keep some kind of uh, space beside highways free of brush and, and, and debris and that kind of thing? Or? Well, it's not just the brush and debris. I mean, you see the smoke, the fire that's come straight down the road. I've been driving through the area through the day. The ministry is doing its utmost to keep the roads open, working with the emergency preparedness people, working with the police to ensure that roads can stay open. Uh, but we are also dealing with public safety. So if it is deemed that the roads are it's not safe to open them, then the ministry is doing its utmost to ensure that there are di- alternative routes uh, available. And encouraging everybody to go to Drive BC and check the routes before setting off. Uh, fair to say, though, that once the fire season dies down, you'll probably have a look and see if there's any tweaks or changes in the highways front that could help out or, or whatever? It's definitely there will be lessons learned from this whole experience. I think everybody is still working through it. It's, uh, very, it's uh, huge for everyone in BC, so we need to get through this, uh, work with communities work with uh, the different aspects of the emergency teams and then uh, take the lessons that we learn from this into the future. All right. Uh, before I let you go, Claire, what's the next big project on your list? I know like uh, other ministers, you're basically drinking water from a fire hose here and getting used to your portfolio. Uh, what's the next big project uh, that you're looking at tackling? Well, I'm looking at my mandate letter. I have a, a number of areas there that need to be dealt with. 
So I'm going through that list, uh, working with minister, ministry staff, working with uh, people, stakeholders, and just, as I say, taking this as, as my to-do list and seeing how we can move on with it. Excellent. Claire, appreciate the time. No problem, Shane. Bye. That was Transportation Minister Claire Trevena, and that's it for this week's show on Inside Politics. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next week right here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.